So hello, I'm Andrew, uh, if you haven't met me, and I have the joy of uh, being in ministry, serving alongside Tim and Hills and lots of other people in this amazing church. And, and massive welcome if you're, if you're new tonight or you're, you're trying us out and, and if you're watching online as, as well. Um, I got back at four o'clock uh, this afternoon from a thing called New Wine. So New Wine is a kind of um, sort of Christian mini Glastonbury. It's really mini compared to Glastonbury, but it's a festival, and it was in a field, and we were camping Detling, which is down in Kent, the Garden of England, and uh, we were camping there, and there were several thousand of us, I, I don't know exactly how many, I think it was about seven or eight thousand, maybe even a few more, who were all there together, and we were camping, and we were listening to music, and we were um, celebrating, and we were having Bible teaching, and we were camping in the glorious summer weather. Isn't it just amazing? Yeah. I don't know if you've been to, uh, to a festival. Some of you will have been to, to New Wine before. And uh, you may have heard, actually, that New Wine next year is going to be back at Shepton Mallet. Yeah, yeah. Shepton Mallet Showground, where it used to be. And there's a few of us who are thinking, that's great. We want to we go down, down there to, to Shepton Mallet. Um, I really want to encourage you, if you've not been to a, a Christian festival, uh, you know, there's one coming up at the end of this month, David's Tent, um, and there are various other festivals around. And next year, uh, there'll be a bunch of us going to, there's one called Wildfires, and there's another one called, as I say, David's Tent, but New Wine. I really want to encourage you, really want to encourage you, because, you know, maybe you feel a bit isolated at times. It's, it's a lovely thing, isn't it, that we can be here and we get to worship with a, a relatively good number of people. And I'm sure that encourages us. But there's nothing like worshipping God with, you know, maybe 10,000 other people. There's nothing like it. And if you want to turbocharge your relationship with God, if you want to turbocharge being a follower of Jesus, then going to one of the festivals that there is, nothing could be better. By the way, that one next year, New Wine, which a load of us will be going to, as I say, I'm sure others will go to others as well, um, because it's just going to be one week. It traditionally has been two weeks. It's just going to be one week. And it, I think it's the 26th to the 31st of August, and there's a 20% discount on at the moment on your ticket. So I really encourage you to think, if you just feel a little nudge, feel that, feel that nudge. Um, I, I loved uh, the, the story that, that, that Tim's been referencing and, and what Hills has been referencing as well. And it really, they had no idea what I was, well, they had a kind of vague idea what I was talking about because we've got a topic title, but they don't really know. Um, so let's see how God has already begun to, to stitch some things together with our, our summer series, But God. Um, so uh, 160 years ago, you may have heard this story, there was a, an acrobat um, called Charles Blondin. And he put a tightrope across Niagara Falls, about a quarter of a mile. Don't know what that is in kilometres, forgive me. Anyway, um, about a quarter of a mile of Niagara Falls. Anyone been to Niagara Falls? Yeah, it's big. You know, just think rushing water, spray, you know, rocks, huge, you know, height. And he, he put this tightrope across. And, and um, in... July of that year, he walked across the tightrope, across the falls, several times. He went, uh, he went in a sack on the tightrope, over the top, you know, hundreds of feet above, you know, went, can you imagine that in a, in a sack? He, he crossed it on stilts, yeah, stilts, and then he rode a bike across it. 
And the, the last time he did it, on the 15th of July, he, he went over, he walked across, the, you know, from, actually it was from the States, from the USA, over to Canada, and he brought back with him a wheelbarrow. And he said to the crowd, this amazed crowd, 15th of July, 1859, he said, do, do you believe that I could wheel someone across Niagara Falls? What, what do you think they all said? Anyone alive? What do you think they all said? Good. Then he said, who's going to volunteer? What do you think happened? Nothing. At least initially. One of the speakers who's been really great at New Wine, and I unashamedly share with you some of the things that have been shared with B and have impacted on me. And I know Tim and Hill's heard him as well. Glenn Packiam, speaking in the mornings. He, he said he was really challenging us about a very simple thing, but is so profound and so, you know, connected with, with what's going on at Trinity at the moment. I'll, I'll say a bit more about that. So connected with our series about what does it mean to say, but God. And he just said this. He said, Faith, faith, belief is what you actually do, the way you live. It's, it's not what you say you believe in your mind. It's actually not what you say almost at all. I mean, there is something about proclaiming belief that, you know, we are a people of the word. But fundamentally... Did the crowd believe that he could wheel someone safely across Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow? No, if they weren't willing to actually get in the wheelbarrow themselves. Are you a follower of Jesus? By the way, welcome if you wouldn't use that language. If you wouldn't say, I'm not sure, Andrew. That's actually why I'm here tonight. It's why I'm, what I'm searching for. But if you want to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And then I say to you, as Glenn Packiam said to me, amongst a whole load of thousands of people, by the way. So what do you believe? And just imagine that your answer to that question can only be given by the things that you actually do. That I would say to you, are you a follower of Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I am. Great. I'd like to follow you this week to see what you believe. Now, I'm not making that offer to you for myself because I have a perfect life. No, of course, that's not true. But it's challenging, isn't it? I've been really challenged. And this guy, Glenn, was saying the problem is that lots of people are looking at us and they're working out what Christians believe by what we do or don't do. And that really takes us to the heart of this little summer series that we've got. 
Nikki and I were camping in France. We're going to France tomorrow night. I'm sorry, I apologise if you don't get the joy of a holiday. I'm just in the kind of in-between moment between a lot of church. I've done church every day for the last few days several times. You know, I'm fully churched out, okay? I'm glowing with sunburn and rust, and I'm about to go on holiday, so I'll be annoyingly tiggerish and bouncy tonight. But um, we were camping in France one, one time, and we packed everything up. We absolutely everything. And then we couldn't find the car key. You know? And I take these things so peacefully. I'm just so filled with God, so filled with the Holy Spirit. Nay, will tell you, as one of my daughters. Just never a crossword, is there? Never a crossword from me. I just, I lost it. I mean, you know, I... I completely lost it but then there was a moment where we said well let's pray and we unpacked the entire car and we found the keys in the pocket inside the tent where I'd put them to be safe they really were safe silly example but I've prayed about finance. Uh, you know, Nikki and I have prayed about finance, about not having a job, about not being able to pay the mortgage. And at the end of ourselves, at the end of kind of everything else we've tried, as you know, followers of Jesus who kind of think the Holy Spirit just sort of gives us some wise advice, we've finally said, but God, and he's provided. I've seen people being healed where there's been no other way of addressing their need. And then we just dared to pray, but God... But God, those words appear through, through the Bible lots of times. Lots of times when people are facing circumstances and they're facing situations and the rubber is really hitting the road. What do I actually believe at this point? Do I, am I going to choose to trust in God? Am I, am I going to believe that God is always working for good? See, that's a promise in the Bible that followers of Jesus are meant to believe. Do we live that way? That God is always working for good. There are times in the Bible where people say, I believe because, and they act on this, that the power of God, the same power that, that took Jesus from death after death on the cross and took him to heaven, he rose again. That resurrection power is in me. There are people in the Bible who faced with worldly situations that seem impossible who say but God and then they act in line with that promise and that's what we're thinking about what happens when we believe in the, in the sense that we actually get in the wheelbarrow, we actually do it, we live as if it's true, what happens when we say, but God? Are you facing a situation tonight? Can you imagine any situation, perhaps, where you see no answer to it? But God. That's the invitation. Are you here tonight and you would say, well, Andrew, I'm actually, I'm not a follower of Jesus because the reality is, you know, I don't even believe in my head this stuff. I, I haven't been singing the songs tonight. That's got integrity, by the way. Nikki, my wife, would share the story that she used to go to church with me for a long time, didn't sing the songs because she knew she didn't believe it. If you're here tonight, it's got integrity. So, Andrew, that's where I am. 
And I don't believe, I don't know, how could God reach me? How could God answer my questions? Well, the invitation tonight and of this series is to pray, but God. See, it's all based, this series, on a promise. A promise that is intended to be not just a theoretical, but a truth. And here it is, Romans 8.28. I've already referred to it. And we know, says Paul, who's writing from Rome to the church of Jesus Christ in the early first centuries when they're just getting going. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. This is the essence, the basis, the foundation for a but God kind of prayer. It's saying, isn't it, if you look at those words, we'll leave them on the screen in a moment, it's saying that God is always at work, however things look. Whatever it looks like from a human perspective, God is always at work. And he's working for good. So I don't know about you, but but when I was growing up as a young Christian and I, I was really trying to live out my faith through my own strength, I was trying, you know, and I heard lots of great talks that sort of, you know, frightened me, basically. And, and, and I just, you know, all I was, I was under guilt, basically. I mean, you all know we have a top 10 of our own commandments. You know there's the Ten Commandments in the Bible, don't you? But we all have our own personal top ten. And if you're only breaking two or three out of the ten, you're doing pretty well, aren't you? Well, that's guilt trip kind of religion. And I I used to believe, you know, that God, frankly, just trips me up every now and again. I I, I sort of kind of began to believe that, that God, you know... He was like the angry headmaster in the sky. But this this promise, this foundation for this whole series, this invitation to you, whatever you're facing, whatever circumstance you're in, whether you're trying to say, God, I need you to show up so that I know this thing is true, this faith thing is true, or you're a Christian that's been walking in this kind of way, but you're maybe feeling a bit, you know, like the you're feeling cold. We had a picture of embers that some of us, you know, we've been on fire in the past, but now it's just just some little embers. If, if that's you or you're you know facing a, an impossible struggle and if you this invitation to pray but God is, is to believe that God is always at work and always for good he's not trying to trick you he's not trying to catch you out he's not interested in punishing you but he's for those who love him that notice that because it's it's for those who want a relationship with him those who say, yes, I want to follow. Yes, Jesus, take me by the hand. I want a relationship with God, Father, creator of all the world, through Jesus, through what he did on the cross. And I want you, God, the Holy Spirit, to come and to fill my life. Take my hand and walk with me. I'll, I'll get in the wheelbarrow. Because I, I not only believe in principle that you can do it, Whatever the storms, whatever the height, whatever, I actually, I actually believe it. Because you work for good in all circumstances for those who want a relationship with you. God never turns up, by the way, for those who just challenge him to prove himself. He's God. And of course, there's this thing about being according to his purpose. Notice that as well. 101 for unanswered prayer. First kind of question is, 
is the prayer I'm making actually in line with God's nature, God's character, and how he's revealed himself to me in, in the Bible? But this is the truth. This is the foundation for saying, but God. Tonight, we're just going to focus uh, for a moment or two on just one moment at the beginning of the Bible where someone says, but God. It's the story of Joseph. Um, if we show the, the second slide, thanks, Hannah, you're doing a great job. Anyone, who vaguely knows the story of Joseph? Technicolor, dream coat, kind of, you know, Jason Donovan. He Actually, he was singing it when I, he wasn't Joseph, by the way, he acted out the part. Um, anyone sing the song? Jay? No, coat of many colours. Well, which one? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, Joseph. So, okay, quick synopsis of Joseph. Here you go. Are you, are you ready? And Hannah's going to put some bullet points up. Okay, so Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. Right at the beginning of the Bible, Jacob, who was renamed Israel. From, yes, where we get that through. Meaning the people of God. He loved one of his wives, Rachel, more than he loved the other wives. He had a son by Rachel, Joseph. He favoured Joseph. He favoured Joseph so much, he bought him a coat of many colours. He bought him a coat of many colours because he was saying, Joseph, you're never going to have to work for a living because you won't need working clothes. You're just going to have this really pretty multicoloured coat. His brothers, his half-brothers, didn't like this. They resented Joseph. They resented him even more when Joseph had a dream. Joseph had a dream that they were collecting um, the harvest in, they were bundles of grain, and each one of the bundles of grain represented one of his brothers, and he was a bundle of grain, and in his dream he told them, I saw you all bow down to me. That made them really cheery. Then he had another dream where he saw himself, he saw the sun representing his father, the moon representing his mother, 11 stars represent representing his brothers and all the stars, he said them, bowed down to me. The brothers were so upset with Joseph that they decided to kill him. They went out to feed the flocks. They jumped on him. They stripped off his coat of many colours. That's the song, by the way. And they chucked him into a pit. They were going to kill him. One of the brothers, though, said, let's not kill him. And they saw some slave traders on their way to Egypt coming past and they sold Joseph to the slave traders. They took the coat of many colours, they covered it in goat's blood, they took it to dad and they said, dad, Joseph has unfortunately been killed by some wild animals. Joseph ends up in Egypt, but here God begins to move because he is put into the house of Pharaoh, the chief Pharaoh, Potiphar. He's made his servant. So good is he at being a servant, so good is he that he gradually goes through the ranks until he becomes Potiphar's personal servant. And then he's the head servant supervising the whole household. The roller coaster has gone up. At this point, Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to him and tries to persuade him to have sex with her persistently for a number of days. He says, no, no, no. At one point, she grabs and reaches out for him, grabs his robe. He runs off. She's so cross. She goes to her husband and says, Joseph tried to rape me. And here's the proof. Here's his cloak that he left behind. He's put into prison. In prison, he meets two other people from the household who've been put in prison, the chief wine bearer and the chief baker, who've managed to upset Potiphar. 
They have dreams. Joseph interprets their dreams accurately. The chief wine cup holder ends up getting reinstated. And when Potiphar has a dream that he can't explain, the the wine cup bearer says, oh, there's that bloke in prison who you chucked there, Joseph. He's very good at interpreting dreams. Joseph gets taken out of prison, interprets the dream, gets put in charge because his dream is that there's going to be seven years of plenty and they need to gather grain and put it into the harvest, into the barns, and then there's going to be a seven-year famine. And so Potiphar says, you're so bright, so wise, puts him in charge, he's in charge, takes in all the grain for seven uh, years, and then when the famine comes, they've got enough grain. The famine is so great that people from all over the world go to Egypt to get grain for their bread, including the sons, the brothers of Jacob. Joseph recognises them. They don't recognise him. He speaks to them in Egyptian. He says to them, you haven't brought one of the brothers, the youngest. And they say, no, we've left him at home with dad. He says, go home, get him, and then bring him to me if you want some grain. They do go home. They bring the brother to him. Joseph reveals himself. They're all reconciled. And eventually the whole family moves to Egypt. Dad dies. It's all peaceful. Just turn to your neighbour and just repeat that story, would you? Do you get the impression, do you get the feel that this was a bit of a roller coaster ride for Joseph? Read it in Genesis, okay? Yeah? So the choice is this, isn't it? Let's read what happens right at the at the end. There's the sort of summary up there. Genesis 50, 15, and this is where we're gonna just come into land. So this has all happened. Joseph has been, his brothers have tried to kill him, into slavery, elevated to power, abused, power abuse, in this case from a woman to a man, thrown in prison, forgotten, reinstated, brothers come back, and this is what happens after dad dies. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now, Joseph We'll show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, handily, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. The brothers make a human calculation and then act in a humanly inspired way. They, they make up, a, so broken are they, they actually even make up a story that dad on his deathbed had, had wanted Joseph to, to forgive them. 
Joseph calculates and acts from a faith perspective. But God. Now, there is much that is probably confusing in this story. There is much that probably would spark very reasonable questions for us about how could you know, this kind of stuff happen to somebody. Where I'm not going to pretend there aren't tough questions. I also don't want to make a clunky connection between a truth here that actually it's out of Joseph's pain and his humbling because he was proud and was a pretty horrible person. It's, it's out of that that God is able to use him. Please would you hear me really carefully. I'm not saying if, the, if you're going through a really tough situation and you're experiencing pain, I'm not saying that automatically equals you need to be humbled. But from my own life story, I know that I have needed to be humbled. And actually that God has used painful situations. I I don't say that God has sent. But God has used some incredibly painful parts of my life to, to enable me to trust in him fully. And I think to be more useful to him. And I don't know exactly what's going on with those abuses of power by Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and all of the dynamics and with everything that's going on at the moment. I, you know, please forgive me if it feels like I'm just skating over some really hard questions. They're, they're real questions. But can I just urge you not to let real questions about some of the challenging bits cause you to avoid missing the stuff? And this is always true with the Bible that is actually just really obvious in this story. The brothers calculate with a human perspective, economy, understanding about doing wrong, getting caught, someone taking revenge, possibly even fairly. Joseph but God. However rubbish things have been, I'm going to look at this from the perspective of but God is always working for good. Now Joseph does get to see, doesn't he? He does get to see how God used him because he saved saved many, many lives through the position that he got to. You may be here and you, you won't see how God has been working for good in your situation until you're with him in heaven. That is possible. I am not going to promise you, make you a false promise that you will always see how God is at work. Certainly not fully. But the promise is that God is always at work for good in every situation. 
And so for some of us, that, that God wheelbarrow will, will feel tougher to step into than perhaps for some others. But for every single one of us, if that's a helpful image, it's actually the same action we need to take. And I say this sometimes, and I absolutely mean it. If you're here tonight and you're only here just you know, by the tip of your, you know, by your fingertips, if, if, if being here is the hardest place to be, if, if for you the action of belief, the action of faith is in the context of a huge storm where you, you can't remotely see how God is working for good, then I just want to I just want to applaud you. I just want to cheer you on. I just want to say that you are the best of us. Because there's another promise in scripture in the Bible, isn't there, that God is strong where we are weak. So if you're here tonight and in your sense of weakness you're still holding on. You're still daring to believe. You're still going to look at situations and say, but God, the whole of heaven, the whole of heaven is cheering you on. See, Joseph, and again, I don't want to make this too clunky and I don't want to lay guilt on you. I've already said something about that. But, but Joseph, in his actions, reflects the very heart and nature of God, doesn't he? Where the world would judge and would say, you, you fairly deserve, you know, you ought to be in prison, brothers, because of what you did at the very least. Look what you did to me, an eye for an eye, you know. He exercises mercy, doesn't he? Just as is the very nature and heart of God. God does not treat us as we deserve for our sin. He is God. He's not pretending to be God. Every single one of us deserves any punishment, if, if we're honest about it. If I stood before God and if God treated me as I deserve for the sin in my life and the mistakes that I've made and the things that I carry on making, I've not got a leg to stand on, have I? But you see, God doesn't treat me like that. God treats me with mercy. In Jesus, he comes down. He walks on earth. He talks. He speaks. He loves. He demonstrates. He dies on a cross for me, for you. Mercy. To take away the sin. But he doesn't just only leave us with the, the penalty paid. He actually then is in grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us life. He gives us fullness of life. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm coming in the Holy Spirit to be with you, to live with you, to be with you always, forever. Mercy and grace. And Joseph acts in that belief. He, he, that's how he treats his brothers. Because of his but God perspective forgiveness 
is both incredibly complex and, in a sense, simple. I don't mean simplistic. I don't mean in a wrong way. Forgiveness comes in in waves, doesn't it? Forgiveness is, is like an onion. You have to peel off layers of forgiveness. Forgiveness involves reconciliation. It involves restoration. It can involve restitution. Yes, it can be. People have to put things right. Forgiveness is, in one sense, forgiveness is incredibly complex, just as complex as we are in the circumstances which hurt us and the people that hurt us and just as... It is all of that. But forgiveness, or certainly the road through which you have to travel, is also actually fundamentally simple. Joseph says, I'm not God. It's not me to judge you. He doesn't let them off the hook. Doesn't tell them that God is not going to judge them and deal with them fairly. But he does say, I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm going to treat you the way that I have been treated by God. Please, please, please hear me if that you know, just remotely feels like, yeah, but Andrew, you just don't understand or, or you're laying a bit more guilt on me because you're, I'm only trying to be really honest with you and say it is both. And I'm sure there are circumstances in this room that would absolutely make me cry and tear myself apart for, you know, but, but nothing compared to how it feels for you. And, and there'll be all kinds of dynamics to how I think God would work. But I also do want you to notice the really simple thing here. That Joseph finds freedom. Because he chooses. It's, it's his choice. No one, no one makes it for It's his choice. He, he, if you like, retains the power to do this. And he forgives. And the result is he has freedom. He provides practical care for them. That's how the story ends. He, he uses whatever he has in his hands because that's, again, how we actually demonstrate what we believe. Someone at the New Wine Conference, I don't know if it was Glenn, I can't remember, the, the guy who was doing the morning teaching, Glenn Packiam. Um, but someone said the problem is that, you know, people look at us as Christians and say, well, you... You're not the most loving people. You're not the kindest people. You're not the gentlest. You're not the people with the most self-control. You're not the most patient people. All those things that we say we believe. What Joseph did was to try and demonstrate the very nature of God in the way he treated his brothers. And how he looked back on his story and said, but God. And as I've said, yes, he did get to see, he did get to realise how God had used it. God's used Joseph, this horrible story, to, to literally save thousands and thousands of people. I don't know how many, but, but through a famine. The brothers, you do notice at the end, there is an expression there of complete humility. Having made up their stupid story, they do fall down on their faces and in the culture of the time, 
that would be a signifier of complete humility as it is perhaps for some of us. Are we willing to fall down flat on our faces as much as we're willing to hold our hands high? I love the illustration of the tapestry that sometimes people use to try and explain this. You know if you do a tapestry with bits of wool? It's very different, isn't it, which side of the tapestry you're looking at? You know, we always imagine the beautiful picture side. That, that's the side that God sees. In my life, I'm quite often looking from the other side. And it just looks like lots of strings. Lots of different multicolours. I maybe have a bit of a sense of the picture, but I don't see the whole of the picture. But it's all about perspective, isn't it? Am I kind of looking at life and myself from the human side? Or am I trying to imagine and be open to the God side of the beautiful picture? As I thought about tonight and what I was saying, and we're just even sitting at the back, I just wondered if there'd be some people here tonight who maybe you'd say, yeah, you don't really have faith at, at this point. That's, that's being honest. That's integrity. But you'd love it. You'd love to receive the grace and the mercy and the freedom and the power and the love and the beauty and everything that God wants to give you. And so for you tonight, in a moment, faced with everything that would seem to sort of kind of potentially be against, are you going to say, but God? Then I thought there'd be a second group, maybe, of us, and this reflects something from a few weeks ago on an evening celebration. Those of us, there was a word given a few weeks ago, and a lot of people responded about it feeling like we've been on fire in the past, but now we're just, it's just some embers. And we really want those embers to be blown on. We know we need God, the Holy Spirit, to come and to reignite the fire, to close the gap between perhaps what we say and we sing and what we actually do in our lives. The kind of integrity, wholeness gap. And tonight we want to say, with everything that's happened and with all of that story and all of those reasons, I'm just tonight going to say, but God, I believe you love me. I believe with you, it's never plan B. It's always let's go from here. Thirdly, some of you facing really tough situations, really tough situations. And I don't know what exactly will happen if tonight you choose to say, in the face of that situation, but God. I'm, I'm not going to promise you instant solutions, but I am going to promise you that something will change. <laughs> I'm going to promise you that God will, will show you a way. And then finally, I just want to address any of us who might be here thinking tonight, I've kind of got it sorted. Have you? Would you like us to watch a video of the next seven days of your life?
I wouldn't like you to watch one of mine. Partly because I'll be wearing shorts. But you get the point. There are bits of my life where I could tell you what I believe. But it's not the same as fully, fully acting and living on the basis that it is true. That's the truth about me. And I, in a moment, want to say, but God, in the face of that, I want to, as the Bible says graphically, put to death the bits, more of the bits of Andrew that thinks he's got it sorted and recognise my need for the God who loves me so much that he died for me on the cross and rose again.